Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You don't need to believe in climate change to believe in capitalism. And now the fortunes of our economy are tied to the fortunes of our planet. So taking action on climate change means uh, stronger economic growth. So Scott Morrison should do this because it's the economically rational thing to do. And it's completely in line with what the Liberal Party and the National Party have traditionally stood for. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host, and I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And I'm delighted to have with me down the pipe this week, remotely in Sydney, Matt Keane, who is uh, the State Minister for Energy and the Environment. Now, Matt's with me this week because uh, people who follow climate closely will know there's been big news in the state this week. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But Matt, why don't we start just because this pod has listeners around the country and and said people in the around the world, people who are not necessarily in New South Wales, uh, don't know you particularly well. Why don't you Why don't you just introduce yourself to the listeners? Uh, you know, how did you start in politics? What's been your progression, etc. Uh, well, thank you, Catherine. I think the best way to start is by saying that I'm a big fanboy of you and very excited to be on this podcast. <laughs> um, but for uh, aside from that, I'm the uh, state member for Hornsby, uh, which is um, a, a seat in Sydney's northern suburbs. I was elected in 2011. I was one of the youngest members of the parliament at that time. I came in in the O'Farrell landslide. And uh, so I've just celebrated my 10th anniversary as a member of parliament. I turned 40 last week and um, uh, I've given a lot to my job as an MP, including my hair, as you can see. I'm I'm a very uh, fast, balding, uh, middle-aged man. Um, But uh, jokes aside, I'm the member for Hornsby. It's an area I grew up in. I've lived here my entire life. The interesting thing about this area, it's known as the Bushland Shire. And um, it's, um, I raise that because it's one of the safest Liberal seats in New South Wales and um, it's also home to an amazing natural environment. So I've never seen any dissonance between voting Liberal and wanting to protect our environment. In fact, I've always seen it as one in the same. Um, so I guess that gives your listeners a bit of an explainer about why I'm so passionate about my portfolio area and why I'm so aggressively pursuing policies that will hand our planet to our kids better than we found it. 
And that's, yeah, that segued nicely into the next question because, I mean, I think you've answered it, but uh, obviously uh, professional politicians have a number of portfolios through their career, uh, not usually just one. I'm interested when when you started to switch on about this issue in particular, um, because obviously I've dealt with a number of federal environment and uh, and climate change ministers in my time in Canberra. Some are uh, massive enthusiasts, others are people passing through a portfolio for a period of time. So when do you, when did you become interested? Because you and I talk frequently enough for me to know that you are genuinely interested in this area. So where did that start? Growing up in this area, I'd always been interested in national parks and the natural environment. I mean, my family home backed onto the Karingai Chase National Park. So, um, you know, holidays consisted of sort of camping and bushwalking and, you know, swimming down in the river and things like that. So uh, it was always something that I was passionate about. Um, I guess in terms of, I, I guess like everyone, I'd watched the last two decades of Australian politics being consumed um, in these what I think are pointless culture wars around the politics of climate and the environment. And I'd watched, I'd, I'd sort of got PTSD watching prime ministers rise and fall, governments rise and fall on the proposition that we should do something to protect our planet. And I was always I think there should be plenty of debate about the best way to do that, but there should be no debate about the fact that we need to do it. So I guess what um, really um, got me passionate about the policy space was I'd just been handed the portfolio. Gladys Berejiklian asked me to be her Minister for Energy and Environment, and the first thought was, what have I done to upset you? How did... What, <laughs> Was I'm asking you really. Did I offend you somehow? I thought I'd been such a loyal supporter of yours, Premier, <laughs> and you've given me this poisoned chalice. But um, pretty quickly after that, I went overseas and I, I went to um, Germany and saw what was happening in Europe and how far ahead of the curve they were. And the penny dropped pretty quickly that this wasn't just a moral argument and an environmental argument. It was an economic imperative for us to take action on climate change. And for me, what, what made me sign up to the Liberal Party in the first place was my interest in economics and the economy. I'm a, I'm a chartered accountant by profession. That's where I get on my personality cap. <laughs> and so marrying my love for the environment with my passion for economic policy really made me want to get into this space and double down on finding a solution and a path forward, which um, hopefully we've seen in recent times we've, we've had a bit of success in. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely pushing ahead. Um, just uh, I want to um, uh, just uh, wind you back a fraction. You mentioned, of course, uh, PTSD and the two-decade-long uh, horror show that is the conversation in this country about carbon pricing and and about climate change more generally. Now, I think, uh, you know, sort of underpinning a lot of your contributions is uh, the is is a very clear and and well articulated sense that this has been a mistake that this this the weaponization of this issue has been a mistake why do you think it's happened because obviously sadly your side of politics certainly in the federal arena has has weaponized this issue uh, to sort of carve up the electoral geography and win elections that's why i think it's happened why do you think it's happened 
I think that uh, the party often takes on the complexion of the leader at the time. And I think that um, after Howard lost the leadership of the uh, of the country, um, uh, then the Liberal Party had lost its way in terms of finding uh, an, a, a successful leader electorally uh, until Tony Abbott came along. And Tony, who... Um, you know, there are many things I admire about Tony, but his views on the environment and climate change aren't two of them. Um, I think he found fertile ground in prosecuting an argument, a political argument about the costs that Australians would face if they took action on climate change, um, you know, through an, an emissions trading scheme or a carbon tax. Um, and that would that was a very successful argument. And um, there are many things that I you know, I can appreciate how it resonated so effectively, but the reality is that there is also a cost for us not taking action on climate change, and now that's looking far greater than any cost that would have been imposed, in my view, by emissions trading schemes or carbon taxes and things like that. And, you know, when I got the opportunity to stand up and, and try and make a difference in this space, um, I wanted to make sure we did it in a way that recognised that we don't want to be transferring more pain to communities or households um, and to try and find a way through that could um, help us take advantage of these huge emerging economic opportunities that are coming um, because that's what's at stake here. I mean, if we don't move now, we're going to be left behind and that will come at the expense of not just our industry, but whole communities, um, potentially the whole country. We can't afford to be a rust bucket state in a world that's moving pretty quickly. Um, when Fran Kelly put to me that uh, Matt Canavan said that coal prices were very high and therefore that should show that the coal industry was sustainable into the long term. And I think the argument there is, well, Kodak uh, was once one of the most profitable companies in the world. In fact, in 2007, they were one of the most profitable companies in the world um, and they refused to go digital and they were filing for bankruptcy by 2012. And, and that's that analogy is absolutely relevant to us here in Australia. And I want to I want to go headfirst into the target announcement in a tick, but just one more question. Obviously, I've only ever reported politics in the federal arena. I've not done time in the state parliament. Obviously, um, in the state parliament, you have to balance your relationship with the National Party. We saw, obviously, (laughs) earlier in the year, an explosion over koalas. If I could, I don't know if koalas explode, but there was obviously an explosion in the government over koalas. But yet the Nationals in the state parliament have got behind your renewable energy zones and are behind at the target uh, that, that, that you've announced this week. Now, in the federal arena, neither of those things would be automatic, renewable energy zones or, or, a, or a significantly more ambitious climate target, right? So I'm, I'm curious because it's not my patch, so I don't know the answer. Um, what, what is the difference uh, between the sort of disposition of the nationals in New South Wales and and nationally, is it just is it simply a matter that you, Matt, in the state, you don't have to deal with Queensland nationals? Therefore, <laughs> this issue is easy. I'm not saying it's easy because we all saw the koala explosion, so it's fine. I know it's not easy, but there is a difference. There's obviously a difference. I don't know what it is. Can you explain to me what it is? I think there's a couple of 
points that I'd make. Firstly, what we've tried to do is find the things that unite the coalition, uh, particularly when it comes to climate, energy, environment. Um, and uh, in my view, that's jobs. How do we create new jobs? How do we create new industries? How do we lower cost of living pressures? Uh, how do we drive investment and grow our prosperity? So what we've tried to do is design policies that will tick all those boxes so that I can go to the National Party and say, hey, these renewable energy zones, they're going to drive, and in New South Wales's case, around $32 billion worth of private capital uh, into this state and, more importantly, into the regions. And we're going to create around 9,000 jobs in the next decade, in largely in the regions. And also, at the same time, we're going to lower power bills and, oh, yeah, by the way, it's also good for the environment, why wouldn't they get on board? So basically we built the case around the economics and demonstrated how it would benefit rural and regional New South Wales. We did the hard policy work to design a scheme that the Nats wanted. Mm-hmm. And that's why John Barillaro, and I'll, I'll get to John Barillaro in a second, but that's why the Nats signed up to it because it didn't threaten their jobs. In fact, it was going to turbocharge their jobs and their economies in the regions. And that brings me to John Barillaro. We, we often have robust discussions. We don't always see eye to eye. But um, John Barillaro is, in my opinion, one of the best politicians in the country. Um, he's united his party room. So he's got control of, like, he, he's, he's respected in the national party room um, in a way that I've not seen in any political party before. Like he's he's the dominant figure. Um, he's very, very smart and wily. So he's a very good political operator. So he gets politics, he gets the media, and he delivers and fights hard. He fights hard and delivers for his community. So when I presented him with a package that um, delivered for his community mm-hmm. and he understood it, then he was able to deliver the National Party as a whole behind it which is something that we haven't been able to see at the federal level. Mm. Um, now, I, I'm not I'm not making any comment on Barnaby. I, I don't know Barnaby. I don't know the federal nat party room. But uh, what it looks like is there's different personalities in different groups, so it's quite fractious, whereas John, being a strong leader, has been able to unite the Nats and unite the coalition, and that's how we get how, how we got this policy. I should just say it's not just all about the coalition. What we did was try to find common ground across the parliament and uh, we worked with the Labor Party, we worked with the Greens, we worked with the Independents, uh, we worked with everyone to pass our renewable energy plan, which um, was passed almost unanimously through the parliament. And it's the biggest renewable energy policy in the nation's history. Effectively, as our coal-fired power stations close, they're going to be replaced entirely with renewables. Um, and we do it, the fact it's been legislated in a multi-partisan way means that it's going to be sticky so investors can have confidence for the long term that it's not going to change if there's a change of government or a change in leader. I think that's how to do good policy in this country. It is tricky, though, federally, because uh, periodically you see work produced by entirely reputable, um, you know, pe- people like Deloitte or or other think tanks, right, it's sort of quantifying costs and benefits of the transition in various regional areas, for example, right? Um, I've, I've seen work done... Uh, that that demonstrates that in an area like Gladstone, 
for example, in Queensland, that the transition will actually have a net benefit uh, for workers in those regions. So you raise them indigo leadership, which is sort of fascinating, uh, you know, that you need a strong leader in order to hold disparate views together. I, I think that's absolutely true. But also, I mean, like, for example, I have sent that work that I've seen to Queensland Nats who then reject the work. <laughs> It's sort of like you know don't don't want to don't want to make the leap I guess is what I'm saying. So yeah, anyway, it's, it's sort of fascinating as you say. It's uh, but I think maybe the maybe one of the answers is that Barillaro is open to arguments. Is that is that I mean he's obviously not a pushover. Again, I don't want to mention the koalas, but we all saw it, right? But that he is open to an evidence based conversation. Is that is that sort of is that it? I don't know. John is very rational. I mean, he's he's run his own a really successful small business. When you go to him with compelling arguments, particularly on economics, um, you know, I found him to be outstanding, like a really, really good strategic thinker and a strong leader. And I think the proof's in the pudding. You know, here's a coalition government, exactly the same colour as the one in Canberra, driving through a, a progressive, strategic and forward-thinking agenda. Um, that's in our state's interest. And and John deserves so much credit for that. Yes, I do a lot of the detail work in the background, but it wouldn't happen without John. And I think he deserves a lot of credit here. Mm. Let's tell the listeners, because we've you and I have made the mistake in this conversation of just assuming entirely they know what's happened. So why don't you uh, why don't you explain what the New South Wales government has agreed or has unveiled this week in terms of the of the target? Well, this week we, uh, as a government, committed to halve the state's emissions by 2030. And the reason that's exciting is because it puts us in line with our biggest trading partners and our closest allies on the world stage. So, you know, our ambitions here in New South Wales are up there with the United States. So, you know, a Democratic president, Joe Biden, it's completely in line with what they're doing. It's in line with Japan. It's in line with uh, Europe, which is, you know, seen uh, as leading the world in this space. Um what it also does is it brings us into line with what the science says we need to do to limit the impact of global warming um, and uh, ensure that we're able to meet that promise of handing our planet to our kids better than we found it. So, um, you know, I, I didn't think it, it should be that controversial, but apparently it is. But again, what we've done is um, crash, through, break the impasse, um, deliver good environment policy, which is also really good economic policy. And I think Josh Frydenberg really made the case as to why it's important economically. We know that, um, you know, financial markets are now making decisions based on climate risk. Um, and what this target does, um, it says that New South Wales is managing climate risk and we're decarbonising and doing it in a way that's going to grow our economy. But Kath, if I could just say, we haven't just set a target. Um, we haven't just set a target to help our economy and protect our environment. We've actually got a concrete plan to deliver on the target, um, and that's a plan that includes transitioning from coal-fired power to renewables in our electricity system. It's a plan that will see 50% of all vehicles sold in New South Wales being electric by 2030. It's a plan which has $750 million on the table to help our industry big industries and big emitters like Bluescope and Tomago that are also big employers transition uh, to a cleaner future. Um, it's also a plan that will see 
uh, reduce the impact of emissions from our waste uh, industry. So those plans, those policies that we've legislated and put in place have us on track to reduce emissions in New South Wales between 47 and 52% by 2030. Again, up there with world-leading countries uh, in, the, in the emissions reduction space. And what's driving the emissions reduction in the decade? My working assumption is that, and you've and you flagged it, is is obviously the transition in electricity and what's going to happen in transport. In your plan, when is it assumed that the ageing coal plants in New South Wales close? When does your plan think that that will happen? We think that based on the economics, and if you look at the financial statements of Origin Energy, AGL, uh, Energy Australia, these coal-fired power stations are losing money hand over fist because they're being uh, outcompeted by a renewable. Mm. And because they're owned by the private sector, there's an incentive there maybe to switch them off earlier uh, than we anticipated. Now, we, we don't think that they will come out early uh, or that our policies will drive them out early, but there are other factors that could put pressure on them and those private companies may choose to close them much earlier and that's a big risk because we can't have our existing energy generators close before the new infrastructure is built to replace them that way if if that happens then you've got total chaos you've got Mm. huge spikes in prices and a less reliable grid and that's not acceptable we've got a coordinator plan here though in new south wales to build the new infrastructure in time for the closure of the existing infrastructure. And that's the beauty of what we've done. Because it's sort of that those economics that you refer to, we saw very much to the fore in the last summer, right, where coal plants are basically being priced out of the market. There is this risk of a rush to the door. Now, I understand the sensitivity of this issue, so I get it uh, in terms of how it's weaponised, but I can only assume that, that any rational assessment is working on the assumption that these plants go earlier than is technically scheduled, if that makes sense? Well, we we went big and bold on our energy roadmap and we worked on the basis that although we don't think the coal plants will close earlier, they could. And our insurance policy was overbuilding uh, the amount of renewables into the system by 2030 to ensure that if there is early closure, then we're well prepared. Um, so my my calculus was, what have we got to lose? Uh, we've got the new infrastructure built to maintain the reliability. Um, if the coal plants go out, then we've got clean, reliable and cheap electricity anyway. So we're well prepared here in New South Wales because we've got an energy policy and a plan which has been lacking elsewhere. Also, uh, just uh, on the coal closures, a, a really striking difference for me uh, covering this shit show in the federal arena and the state conversation. Now, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this because possibly there's a whole conversation at the state level that I've missed. But federally, one of the sort of spokes in the wheel of climate action, right, over the last couple of decades has been um, sort of various phases of concern about what happens to uh, workers in the coal industry, both power plants and mines. You know, we've been through different iterations of this debate. We've had the just transition bit of this debate. We've had, you know, uh, well, look, too many bloody iterations, right, to count. But yet in New South Wales, it's sort of, it's quite striking from my perch. You've unveiled an ambitious target in which the electricity sector will do a lot of the heavy lifting. But I am unaware of a debate in New South Wales about the state government 
paying out coal power plant workers, uh, you know, providing any compensation, providing any infrastructure around it. So, (laughs) again, it blows my mind. Has there been a whole just transition debate in New South Wales that I've missed? Uh, Are there a bunch of commitments that the New South Wales government has uh, to coal plant workers if these plants shut early or has just this not been a debate in New South Wales? I think because the coal uh, power plants had been privatised, um, that those issues haven't been front and centre of the public debate. Um, that's not to say that they're not being thought through because um, we need to make sure that we leave no one behind in this transition. And that's why we need to be able to support those workers in, uh, you know, carbon impacted industries uh, to be able to access new jobs and new opportunities in in new industries. So there's a whole diversification of the economy piece that goes hand in glove with the policies we've been putting in place. But what I will say is that it's important to remember in this debate that uh, the the number of the majority of jobs in the coal industry. Uh, relate to the export markets, so the production of export coal. I think it's less than 10% of workers um, employed in the coal industry are those providing coal for domestic use. So it's not a huge number Mm -hmm. of workers. They are important and we definitely need to support them and we are looking at policies, which I'll get to in a moment, to help those workers. But the reality is that the majority of jobs are not going to be impacted by domestic policymakers. They're going to be impacted by uh, changes in international markets and decisions by foreign governments and foreign companies. And unless we're preparing for that reality, then we really are going to get left behind and uh, potentially uh, going to impact adversely whole communities and whole regions, and that's not acceptable. What we're trying to do here with our energy strategy including our net zero strategy, is ensure that uh, we identify those risks to those industries and to those communities and that we prepare for that by putting in place and driving us towards developing new industries and new opportunities in the same regions where those skilled workers can be transferred across and have equally high-paying jobs. And that's where interesting technology around hydrogen comes in. That's where ensuring that we provide green electricity to places like Tomago, the big aluminium smelter, come in because that means they're sustainable in that low-carbon global economy. They can continue to export into those international markets without incurring carbon tariffs and stuff, and thus safeguarding those 2,000 jobs at that aluminium smelter, for example. So this is the strategic thinking that we're doing. It's about safeguarding workers now, but ensuring that we're looking to the future and providing them with opportunities in the tomorrow. And just uh, Tom ago, because you've raised it, um, what does, uh, because there's a Commonwealth proposal, obviously, to build a gas peaker uh, in the Hunter and the rationale for that that's invoked at the federal level has been Tom ago will need it, right? If that plant proceeds, uh, what does that do to your target in terms of whether or not you hit it or not? Have you factored in this Commonwealth proposal to your projections about what happens by 2030 or, or not? Yes, because, I mean, our projections are based on our existing policies and including the federal government's policies. So they're quite conservative. We think that we'll exceed them. The reality is the gas peaker in uh, Newcastle, uh, it won't be needed a lot of the time because there'll be so, because we've planned uh, our grid to work mainly on renewables. Um, so the gas 
the gas may be uh, turned on at you know on the hottest day in a one in ten year event and help Potomago at that stage. But we don't envisage that it's needed, certainly not for the long term. Um, our future, Antomago's future, is one where it gets clean and green electricity because if they don't reduce their scope one and scope two emissions, well, then they won't be able to sell into those international markets. Or if they do, they'll be incurring carbon taxes or carbon tariffs, which makes them uncompetitive. And that means that will impact our industry here. So those energy-intensive industries that are export-focused they need to get clean electricity, otherwise they're cooked. And that's what that's the decision point that we took. That's how we got everyone on board with our strategy here in New South Wales. Let's sort of land in the federal domain now, just for the last couple of minutes of our conversation. Obviously, uh, you know, exquisite timing this week with the New South Wales commitment, but you 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 obviously can see Scott Morrison in the process of trying to reach an agreement with the Nationals on a net zero commitment. No one's gone anywhere near 2030. Um, Given that you're uh, sort of on your updated target, basically now New South Wales is contributing a larger share of emissions reduction, right, than you were perhaps that, that was being that that was built in to everybody's assumptions uh given that uh, now we hit 34% reduction at the national level as a consequence of the extra heavy lifting new south wales is doing should the prime minister be updating the 2030 target as well as trying to land a deal on net zero yes i think he should i absolutely think he should i mean i want to see the federal coalition lead in this space. Um, You know, you don't need to believe in climate change to believe in capitalism. And the Liberal Party or the coalition government has always uh, been pro-market, pro-free markets, and focused on building a stronger and more prosperous future for our country. And now the fortunes of our economy are tied to the fortunes of our planet. So taking action on climate change makes economic sense. It's going to mean more jobs. It's going to mean uh, more investment at and lower cost of capital, which will flow through to cheaper mortgages for families and businesses right throughout the country. Um, you know, taking action on climate change means uh, stronger economic growth. All things that uh, liberals and centre-right thinking people should believe in. So, um, Scott Morrison should do this because it's the economically rational thing to do and it's completely in line with what the Liberal Party and the National Party have traditionally stood for. So rather than playing these pointless culture wars and you know silly political parlour games or trying to appease um, you know fringe dwellers of our body politic, they should be focusing on what's in the best interest of the mainstream and the best interest of our country, and that's taking strong and decisive action on climate change for 2050 and 2030. There's been a suggestion doing the rounds here that uh, if the nationals can't be persuaded on 2050, that uh, the Commonwealth could go to Glasgow uh, outlining a roadmap of actions consistent with a net zero position by <laughs> see, what what the listeners can't see is Matt laughing. We're both we're both suppressing laughter. But anyway, I must I must ask this question that that has been doing the rounds that we have a plan uh, that that we unveil. Look here, we can get to net zero, but Australia is effectively silent on the target. Um, on a scale of one to ten, how bad would that be as a landing point? Or like negative a hundred. <laughs> That is, that should be treated like the joke, which it is. I mean, 
Australia needs to step up to the plate. Um, we need to go to Glasgow and argue for the rest of the world to take strong action on climate change because it's in our economic interest to do so. There's no country on the planet uh, that will win more in a low-carbon global economy than Australia. We've got an abundance of renewables. We've got a heap of cheap land. We can uh, not only deliver cheap energy inputs for a lot of the products that are going to be required uh, for the rest of the world to decarbonise, but we can provide those energy sources uh, through renewables that the world's going to need to decarbonise and power their economies, things like hydrogen. Um, we're seeing Mike Cannon-Brooks and Twiggy Forest building a giant extension cord from Darwin up into Singapore, um, at, not because they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, because they're going to make a lot of money out of this. So um, we should get on with it. Uh, we should encourage the rest of the world to get on with it because we will make a lot of money doing so. And that's my that's my case. <laughs> Let's do this because it makes economic sense for because, our country. Because, because hashtag capitalism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go figure. Um, no, final question, just with your, uh, with a political hat on. Obviously, some of your colleagues here in um, the moderate wing of the Liberal Party uh, a mate of yours, Trent Zimmerman, um, you know, others uh, are facing challenges from independence at the next federal election. You know, there's a campaign on because the view is that the moderates have not raised their voices sufficiently in this debate. Is that is that a real threat, do you think, electorally? Uh, people and, and you're, you know, you represent a part of Sydney where you would have a very clear sense of this. Uh, Liberal voters prepared to rise up against the Liberal Party if it does not deliver on climate change? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the number one issue in my community um, is um, taking action on the environment that also helps our economy. Uh, and that should be completely in line with what conservatives, who are meant to be conserving things, uh, should be about. Conserving our planet, handing it to the next generation better than we found it, but also seizing the biggest ep economic opportunity that we will ever see. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't want to see uh, strong, good liberal moderates thrown out and replaced with independence. I think that, as we've demonstrated here in New South Wales, that um, strong, economically rational and socially progressive voices in the Liberal Party can bring about change for the better. And that's what we're doing here in New South Wales. And I want those economically rational, socially progressive people that want to act in the national interest, not invested interest, uh, to be able to shape the direction of our nation. So I want those people to stand up in the Liberal Party and be counted, and then they won't have an issue from uh, independent voices that are looking to knock them off um, in a general election. If, uh, last question, if Scott Morrison fails to land an agreement with the Nats, if things go badly south, and I'm not I'm not saying that will happen, it's, it, it looks, well, I won't say hopeful. I've been, you know, been at this too long to say that it's hopeful and, and even a very small group of people here can blow up action as we've seen uh, frequently over the, over the last 20 years. But anyway, let's say... It's Armageddon and uh, Scott Morrison can't get an agreement around net zero and a roadmap to present at Glasgow. How do you think uh, sensible Liberals should respond to that? 
I think sensible Liberals need to make their position very clear to the Prime Minister, just as uh, Matt Canavan, George Christensen and other characters make it abundantly clear their views on these issues. Um, You know, they never worry about rocking the boat. So why should uh, progressive, um, uh, economically rational Liberals do not do likewise. We should be standing up for our constituencies. We should be standing up for our country and we should be making our voice known in the Liberal Party and in the public domain. That's what I'm doing here in New South Wales. That's what our government is doing in New South Wales and we should get on with it in Canberra. Good fighting note to end on. Matt Keane, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It's been a busy week for you and uh, appreciate you making the or, or giving me the half an hour so that we could get under these things a little more. Um, Thank you to you guys for listening and sharing and all the stuff you normally do. Uh, Thank you to my EP, who is Miles Martignoni. Thank you to Karishma Luthria, who's cutting this episode. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.